So, did you know that Saddam Hussein penned a best-selling romance novel? <laughs> Wait, hang on. Before he was like... No, while he while he was dictator. A romance. Wow. So, basically... What was it called? Uh, it was called... It is called, because it still exists, The Zabibar and the King. Right. What does Zabibar mean? Do you know? It's the girl's name. So, basically, it's about this girl... Has like a cruel, unloving husband who abuses her. So like on the surface, it's like a romance novel, but basically like the the hero of the novel is like meant to be Saddam Hussein, and Zebubar represents the Iraqi people. So the vicious husband is meant to be the United States, and his abuse of Zebubar represents the U.S. invasion of Iraq at the end of the Gulf War. Well, I guess if it was a bestseller, then people. Enjoy, enjoyed it. <laughs> so he just enjoyed got, the right word. He just got his like nationalistic politics in there in like a lovely little romance novel. Wow, that's amazing. There you go. <laughs> Multi-talented old Saddam Hussein. <laughs> uh, welcome, everyone. Have you ever heard of? <laughs> <laughs> what way to start? What way to start? What a way to start. Uh, I'm Katie, and that's Dan. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, not bad. All good. Um, enjoying good. the humidity that is global warming Britain. Yeah, my hair is very fluffy <laughs> right now. Uh, it's just, it's pouring rain and then all of a sudden there's glorious sunshine and my plants are very confused. Uh, it's Friday, so I'm glad about that and ready to, you know, get on with the weekend. Though tomorrow is a very important weekend day because it's 20 years since 9-11 ah. so by the time you're listening to this it would have already been 9-11 but um yeah so tomorrow let's all think about what that 20 years has been wow i guess but that saddam hussein pick was quite topical <laughs> then without meaning to be turned out <laughs> shall i get on with my thing do it do it do it okay so it's a it's a thing instead of a, a person thing. like an object it's a thing uh no, it's a it's a illness. Ah. And it's not COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so have you ever heard of the variola virus? The what? <laughs> the variola virus. No. I, I don't think You I might have. know it more by its common name. Its common name is smallpox. Oh, okay then. Yeah, who has it? <laughs> so I'm gonna do the history of smallpox Lovely today. Stuff. Mainly about like the inoculation. Oh, that's a good story. But I'll start with the general history. Obviously, smallpox, if you haven't heard of it, I'm sure you have, is one of the deadliest diseases ever known to humans. And it's the only human disease to have been eradicated by vaccination. Woohoo! So that's, you know, hashtag get vaxxed, everyone. Well done, humans. So symptoms, this is the gross bit. So, you know, cover your ears for like 20 seconds if you don't know. Symptoms... Include a fever, feeling tired, which is about two weeks after being exposed to the variola virus. Right, we're all right so far. Yep, headache, sore throat, sounds like COVID so far, and then vomiting. Okay. After a few days, a raised rash would appear on your face and body, and sores will form inside your mouth, throat, and nose. Oh, no. Yeah. And then you get the gross bit. So fluid-filled pustules would develop and expand, sometimes joining together, covering oh, large geez. areas of the skin. And then about the third week, scabs formed and separated from the skin. And oh, no. you stop being infectious once the last scab has fallen off. Okay, then. 
And that is the gross bit over. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> do you know how, what percentage of people usually died? I'm going to say 80. Right, it's actually less than that. It's 30% of cases okay, ended in then. death, typically within the second week of infection. Most survivors had some degree of permanent scarring, which could be quite excessive, and other deformities could result in loss of lips, nose, and oh, ear no. tissue. Blindness is actually another cause, like severe case, um, due to like like scarring of your cornea. Basically, smallpox is spread by close contact with the sores or respiratory droplets from an infected person. So similar to COVID. Except for the sores bit. Except for the sores <laughs> bit. But obviously, like, respiratory <laughs> droplets. Contaminated bedding or clothing could also spread disease. And a patient made infectious, like I said, until the last scab separated from their skin. That is so horrible. Just catching it from someone's pus. Great big yeah. pustule. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like I said, the greatest bit is over. So, smallpox obviously plagued us for thousands of years. So I'm going to quickly go over some of the history of smallpox before we start talking about the vaccination. So the actual origin is unknown, which is annoying for historians. Mm. But we do know that smallpox-like rashes on Egyptian mummies have been found, suggesting that smallpox existed for over 3,000 years. So researchers examined the mummy of Egyptian pharaoh Ramesses V, who died in 1157 BC, and they observed similar scarring on his remains for smallpox. He has since got his revenge at Chessington World of Adventures. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone who died from smallpox has a ride at Chessington World of Adventures. So ancient Sanskrit medieval texts dating from about 1500 BC describe smallpox-like illness. It was likely present in Europe by about 300 CE. The earliest description of smallpox appeared in a Chinese text in the 4th century. So again, like 3000 See. Um, and early descriptions also appeared in India in the 7th century and in Asia Minor in the 10th century. Historians trace the global spread of the smallpox of civilizations and exploration. So basically expanding trade routes through over the sea would help spread this horrible disease. And let me just cover some of those so you can see how it would spread from one place to another. So in the 6th century, we have increased trade between China and Korea, and that brings smallpox to Japan. So it, that kind of like Asian part of the world. Arab expansion in the 7th century spreads smallpox to North Africa, Spain, and Portugal. In the 11th century, the Crusades further spread smallpox around Europe. In the 15th century, Portugal occupies part of West Africa and bringing with it smallpox oh boy thank you very much portugal in the 16th century european settlers and the african slave trade import smallpox into the caribbean central and south america so we have some import not important but like interesting dates around this time it's interesting that was so easy to still uh spread diseases back then i mean like we were seeing i see it feels a little bit like since the covid thing started we seem to think it's like a modern phenomena because of like uh, planes and quick travel. 
Yeah. Well, we've always been spreading diseases no, around the world. just slower. <laughs> <laughs> Humans love doing that stuff. But I feel like I wanted to do this because it's it was eradicated by vaccination. Yeah. And I want to just be like, look, we can do it. I know it's well, like we've got a lot more people now. It doesn't look but like, like it, since we might be going back into lockdown even after everyone's got their vac- vaccination. I hope not. Anyway. <laughs> Um, in 1545, there was a smallpox epidemic in India. About 8,000 children died in Goa from a smallpox epidemic likely introduced again by the Portuguese. In the 17th century, European settlers bring smallpox to North America. Oh boy. In 1678, there's an early medical pamphlet on smallpox, the first medical work published in America was printed in Boston, partly in response to the smallpox epidemic in New England. It was by Thomas Thatcher, and it was called A, <laughs> a Brief Rule to Guide the Common People of New England How to Order Themselves and Theirs in the Smallpox or Measles. Smallpox spelt small and then P-O-C-K-S. Ah. I guess that, that, that's, that makes more sense. It's like pock marking. Yeah, that's but... CK, isn't it? We just decided to Turn throw an X. X on the back. For funsies. Make it a bit <laughs> Latin or something. Make Latin it, a bit it up a bit. Trendy. <laughs> so the 18th century, explorers from, obviously us, Great Britain, um, bring a smallpox to Australia. Though Australia wasn't as affected as the rest of the world, just like COVID. <laughs> on the uh, 21st of November, 1736... Uh, Benjamin Franklin loses his son to smallpox, his four-year-old son, Francis Volga Franklin. Volga? Volga. <laughs> okay, F-O-L-G-E-R. then. <laughs> uh, Rumours began to circulate that the boy had actually been inoculated, but this was untrue. So we are actually going to get some early modern <laughs> anti-vaxxers oh, really? here. Oh, here they come. In uh, 1775, smallpox as war happens, kind of. What? So, not really, but George Washington's siege on Boston was complicated by smallpox infection inside the city. So British troops occupying Boston had been variolated, which I will explain in a second, or exposed to smallpox in the past. But Washington's Continental Army troops were more vulnerable. Most had never been exposed to smallpox and were not variolated. Variolated is kind of vaccinated, but not quite. I'll explain. Washington himself had survived a case of smallpox while on the island of Barbados in 1751. And then on the 19th of November, 1836, President Lincoln contracts smallpox. Hours after delivering the Gettysburg Address, President Abraham Lincoln suffered weakness, fever and headache on the train back to Washington. Within a few days, he developed the pox. Uh, medical historians have asserted that he had smallpox, which sickened him for four weeks, but he recovered. Unfortunately, his valet died of the pox. Oh, wow. So it doesn't actually last that long. Only four weeks. I guess four weeks is quite a long time, actually, for a... <laughs> it's a really long time. <laughs> like, I had COVID for, like, bad for, like, a week. And then for, like, a couple of weeks, I felt Mm-mm. really drained. So I guess that was, like, four weeks. Yeah. But I was back at work after like two weeks. Like how, hmm. how long does. I don't know, I'm trying to think of a 
Like malaria, that just lasts forever, doesn't it, basically? Forever. It's just, you just got that, like, dormant in your system. Or, like, Lyme disease lasts, yeah. like, forever. Okay, so early control efforts. So let's start with the Chinese. So several accounts in the 1500s describe a smallpox inoculation practiced in China and India. Um, this is referred to in Joseph Needleman's Science and Civilization in China. Glynn and Glynn as well, in The Life and Death of Smallpox, say that in the late 1600s, Emperor, you might be able to help me with this, <laughs> Kang He? Kang Si? It's what, like H S I. H S I. See? See? Okay, let's go with that. <laughs> Kang Si. <laughs> Who had survived smallpox as a child had his children inoculated. So the method is this one I was just talking about, which isn't quite inoculation. Basically, this is pretty horrible, I'm sorry. So you grind up smallpox stabs, oh, scabs, no. and you blow them into the nose, oh, like into what? the nostril. Just doing lines of smallpox, like scabs. <laughs> oh, so Rack them up, people. Ah, <laughs> oh, So, again, this is said to have been practiced in other places as early as 200 BC, apparently. Ah. This is the method called variolation. So it's a obviously play on the name of the virus, variola virus. During variolation, basically they were exposed to material from smallpox sores by scratching the material in into their arm or inhaling it through the nose. So I think I'd probably rather scratch it into my arm than literally inhale it. Because it's basically what you do with a needle. I mean, like a scab. I guess that's kind of dead, so... Well, so grim. But like, if you're putting it right into your bloodstream, I don't know, That's uh, that seems like you're dicing with death there. I mean, like, <laughs> I, mean... I don't mean <laughs> snorting it as well. I mean, but... I don't know. <laughs> grim. So grim. But after variolation, people usually develop symptoms associated with smallpox, such as fever, but a lot fewer people died from variolation than if they had acquired smallpox naturally. Mm. So, like, go with that. The basis for vaccination began in 1796, when an English doctor, Edward Jenner, Noticed that milkmaids who have gotten cowpox were protected from smallpox. I love this bit. <laughs> so, Jenna also knew about variolation and guessed that the exposure to cowpox could help protect against smallpox. To test the theory, Dr. Jenna took material from cowpox sore on a milkmaid, Sarah Nelmus, um, and inoculated it into the arm of James Phillips, the nine year old son of Jenna's gardener. It's like, hey, can I borrow your son <laughs> so to see bad, if he like gets cowpox? It's <laughs> so bad. Months later, Jenna exposed Philip several times to the variolation virus, <laughs> but but Phil's Phipps never developed smallpox. See, that's the worst bit. Now I'm just going to expose your son to actual smallpox. Hopefully, like, it works a whole bunch of times. <laughs> but yeah, he never got it. He never got it. So there you go. Wow. Um, more experiments followed, and 1801, Jenna published his treatise on the origin of vaccine inoculation. In his work, he summarised his discoveries and expressed the hope that the annihilation of smallpox, the most dreadful scourge of the human species, must be the final result of this practice. However, that pesky royal society rejected his report and his achievement. So Jenna self-published a pamphlet called An Inquiry into the Causes and Effects of the Vario Vaccine 
a disease discovered in some western centuries of England, particularly Gloucestershire, and known by the name of cowpox. <laughs> That's the longest title of all time. The Royal Society always like turn up as bad guys and like literally. Yeah, and stuff. I know. Maybe they we'll do the throw, Royal Society. Like, <laughs> Royal Society of Science seem to hate science. We hate yeah, science. Here we are to ruin science. <laughs> so basically, this this self published pamphlet outlined Jenna's success in protecting James. James Phipps from smallpox infection with the material from cowpox and in addition 22 other related um, tests. Initially the inquiry received little attention but this changed when a man named Henry Klein, an associate of Jenner living in London used dried vaccine material and provided by Jenner to demonstrate once again the vaccination with smallpox material prevented future smallpox infection. But at this point on word about the inquiry quickly spread. So vaccination became widely accepted and gradually replaced the, the replaced the practice of variolation. At some point in the 1800s, the virus used to uh, make the smallpox vaccine changed from cowpox to the vaccinia virus, which okay. is... Probably where we get the name vaccine from. Okay. But it's like a similar disease to smallpox and cowpox. Okay, basically. Then. Like, it has enough Was of it, just it like, to be. Like a more effective way of. Yeah, I guess it's not it. like from a cow. So. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with like, a cow? <laughs> they were like, let's choose this instead. In 1802, Massachusetts became the first US state to encourage the use of vaccination against smallpox. Dr. Warthouse, the first doctor in Boston to abstain the vaccine material, convinced the city's board of health to sponsor a public test for test of vaccination. Nineteen volunteers were sex, sexfully, <laughs> successfully vaccinated. Initially, Waterhouse sought to retain a monopoly over the smallpox vaccine in North America, refusing to provide vaccine material to other doctors without a fee or a portion of their profits. Hashtag bad pharma. <laughs> this monopoly led to efforts to obtain vaccine material from vaccination postules, uh, as opposed to like doing it properly. Um, and in at least one such case, a postule from an arm of a British soldier used to obtain such materials, not in fact from vaccination, but from smallpox. Oh no! So sixty-eight people died from the material. Jeez. Knock off, knock off uh, vaccines. Exactly. Not a good idea, people. Go through your. <laughs> yeah, don't sort. just like have a backstreet like <laughs> vaccination. Eventually, other doctors began receiving genuine vaccine materials from England, and Waterhouse's monopoly was broken, so he decided to share his supplies without complaint. In 1803, King Charles IV of Spain commissioned royal physician Francisco Xavier de. Balmus, one name, to bring a smallpox vaccination to the Spanish colonies of the New World. De Balmus departed on a ship with 22 abandoned children and a host of assistants, planning to vaccinate the boys in sets of two throughout the trip so that fresh postules would be available any given time. Oh man, just growing vaccines and some children. But it gets better. He eventually reached Caracas, despite only one of the children still having a visible cowpox pustule. De Balmus initiated Southern American vaccination. All 22 children were eventually settled, educated, and adopted in Mexico at the Spanish government's expense. 
which Fair I think enough. is cute. I mean, <laughs> they still did use them as like a Petri dish, though, which True. is just really weird. Really weird. <laughs> um, in the last decade of Jenna's life, so the guy who, the original guy, the London Bills of Mortality documented 7,858 deaths from smallpox, which was down by like 18,000 deaths. Oh. In the last decade, so that's really good. In 1858, um, UK uh, introduced an act called the Vaccination Act, and it basically made smallpox mandatory, vaccination mandatory, in the first three months of an infant's life. Hmm. A parent's penalty for not complying was a fine or imprisonment. So when did we, when did we stop doing that? Uh, I'm coming to that. Okay. <laughs> it was also mandatory in other countries, including the US. So in 1882, the Anti-Vaccination League of America had its oh, first boy. meeting in New York. Oh, here we go. The tagline for this um, episode could just be like, America is weird. <laughs> Among the assertions made by the speakers at the meeting was the idea that smallpox was not spread by contamina- contagion, but by filth. This became a popular, though obviously incorrect, argument for anti-vaccinationists. Obviously, we just call them anti-vaxxers now. Who started this? Some, like, pseudo-doctor, isn't it? I know what I'm talking about. Probably not. Probably just some Karen. In 1898, Britain starts to allow exceptions. So, the British Vaccination Act um, provided a conscience clause to allow uh, exemptions to mandatory smallpox vaccination. This clause actually gave rise to the term conscientious objector, which later came to refer to those opposed to military service. I mean, what are they objecting to? They're just anti-vaxxers. Are they they just against the the killing of bacteria? I I have no idea, Dan. (laughs) Like, don't, don't let's not start an argument about anti-vaxxers, because <laughs> I have no idea what's going on in their minds. By the end of the year, magistrates had issued more than 200,000 vaccination exemptions. Oh, jeez. Anti-vaccinationists, or anti-vaxxers, in England and other parts of Europe and the United States were active in publishing, speaking, and demonstrating about their objections to the vaccination. That's the thing that annoys me most of all. It's just like, don't take your your vaccine if you don't want to, but you don't have to tell me about it. Like, yeah, just let me get <laughs> yeah. the vaccine. Like, also, like, trained medical professionals have told me this is better yeah. than not doing this. So, like, in the same way that if you asked me a question about like looking at the library catalogue, yeah, and I said this is how to do it. And then you were like, "Oh no, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do something else." I'd be like, "Why did you, you know, like, I'm the one that knows about that? It's but just like, stupid." I I don't feel the need to go and like protest in someone's face who doesn't want to take the like vaccine. I just don't need to do that. Like, I don't know why people. I've I've had people shouting at me about like vaccines and wearing masks and stuff. It's like, I mean, like, I'm not doing this to you. Like, I I could, but I'm not. Like, why do you need to? Why do you feel the need to? Yeah, me about it. Me and my boyfriend went to St Albans on Sunday just for a nice like pub walk around. It's a nice little town, city actually, and there was like this you know anti-vax stall, and there were two like really old people there, and I was like, okay, fine, if you're like young and fit and whatever, and you want to like be an idiot, 
but these people should definitely be getting yeah. the vaccine. You're not protecting yourself, but you're not protecting them either. Yeah. And it's just ridiculous. I, I was shook. Yeah, that is quite strange. Anyway, so despite all the anti-vaxxers, we're coming to the eradication of smallpox. So in 1959, the World Health Organization started a plan to rid the world of smallpox. Unfortunately, this global eradication campaign suffered from lack of funds, personnel, and commitment from, like, countries, (laughs) and shortage of the vaccine. Despite their efforts, uh, smallpox was still widespread in 1966, causing regular outbreaks, especially in South America, Africa, and Asia. In 1967, the intensified eradication program (laughs) began. With a promise of renewed efforts, laboratories in many countries where smallpox occurred regularly were able to produce more higher quality freeze-dried vaccinations. Other factors that played into important role of intensified efforts include the development of the, like, the sterilised needle, which is called, like, the bifurcated needle, and the establishment and the establishment of a case surveillance system and mass vaccination campaigns. So basically all the things that we should have done properly with COVID. Like, mm. essentially track and trace the 60s version. <laughs> By the time the intensified eradication program began in 67, smallpox were already eliminated in North America, which happened in 52, and Europe, which happened in 53. Cases were still occurring in South America, Asia, and Africa, and like I said, smallpox was never really widely spread in Australia, so they were kind of chilling. The program was steadily made progress and ridding the world from the disease. By 1971, smallpox was eradicated from South America, followed by Asia in 75, and finally Africa in 77. Mm. So that's that's the date. Let's talk about the last cases. So in late 1975, three-year-old Mahabina Banu from Bangladesh was the last person in the world to have naturally acquired, acquired the variola major. She was also the last person in Asia to have active smallpox. She was isolated at home with house guards posted to 24 hours a day until she was no longer infectious. A house-to-house vaccination campaign within a 1.5-mile radius of her home began immediately. A member of the smallpox eradication program team visited every house, public meeting area, school, and other areas, basically, within five miles to ensure the illness had not spread. And that is the kind of dedication that is just... That's insane. Like, (laughs) I just love that. (laughs) They also offered a reward to anyone who reported a smallpox case. (laughs) I love that. So, um... Ali Mayo Malin was the last person to have naturally acquired smallpox caused by a variola minor. Malin was a hospital cook in Mersa, Somalia. In, on the 12th of October 1977, he rode with two smallpox patients in a vehicle from the hospital to a local smallpox office. Then, 10 days later, he developed a fever. At first, healthcare workers diagnosed him with malaria and then chickenpox, but... Um, they actually diagnosed him with smallpox on the 30th. He was placed in isolation and made a full recovery. He actually died in 2013, so it was oh, wow. you know, quite old. Actually, while working on a polio eradication program. Ah. So this is a good guy. He, um, he actually died of malaria, unfortunately. 
Batman's the biggest killer. So Janet Parker was the last person to die of smallpox. In 1978, Parker was a medical photographer at England's Birmingham University Medical School. She worked one floor above the medical microbiology department where staff and students conducted smallpox research. Oh, man. She became ill on the 11th of August and developed a rash on the 15th of August, but not wasn't diagnosed with smallpox until nine days later, and she died on the 11th of September. Shit. Her mother, who was providing care for her, developed smallpox on September 7th, despite having been vaccinated two weeks earlier. And the investigation showed... I, I think her mum was fine. She didn't die. Okay. Investigation showed that Janet had been infected either by the airborne route through the medical school or by direct contact while visiting the corridor. So she didn't actually work in the lab? She just... She was on worked... the floor above. Oh, man. Yeah. But so no one who works in the lab got it? I guess... They had been vaccinated and... They were hazmatting it up. Ha- yeah, hazmatting it up. And she was a photographer, so she wasn't... Oh, I don't man, know. so harsh. I wasn't there. <laughs> I wasn't alive. <laughs> so almost two centuries after Jenna had hoped that vaccination could a- uh, eliminate smallpox, the 33rd World Health Assembly declared the world free of smallpox on the 8th of May, 1980. Many people consider smallpox eradication to be the biggest achievement of international public health. So, let's just talk about what's happening now with smallpox, which you would think would be nothing. However, <laughs> I bet we're bloody weaponizing it, aren't we, in some way? Well, not us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Someone is, though. No, I, don't, I doubt it very much. But following the eradication of smallpox, scientists and public health officials determined there was still a need to perform research on the variola virus. They agreed to reduce the number of laboratories holding stock to only four locations. In 1981, the four countries that either served as WHO collaborating centre or were actively working with virus were the United States, England, Russia and South Africa. By 1984, England and South Africa had either destroyed their stocks or transferred them to other approved labs. So now there's only two locations that hold the variola virus officially, <laughs> which are the Centers for Control Disease and Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, and the State Research Center of Virology and Biotechnology in um, Russia. Big surprise. They are definitely weaponizing those. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, a book called The Pilgrim. It's like a huge book. It's a thriller. It's one of the only <laughs> thrillers I've actually enjoyed. Um <laughs> And the, the main baddie in that, oh, baddie, it's not really the right word, but the main terror, the terrorist in that is trying to, is trying to weaponize smallpox. Okay, so the most recent news bits of about smallpox are in 2002, um, the US military, after the anthrax attacks of 2001, reinstated smallpox vaccination for some personnel. And a similar program for civilian public health workers was implemented through Months later, the perception of the threat of smallpox as a bioweapon was basically just really high after the anthrax attack. Someone's working on it. Uh, between December 2002 and October 2009, more than 1.8 million US service members were received smallpox vaccinations. See, they I know, it's crazy, it. right? So In they t- must be, that must mean they're working on it and they're just like, well, if we're working on it, someone else must be working on it. We're all working on it. I'm working on Jesus it. <laughs> no, I'm not. Weaponized smallpox. I just like. It's just like the slowest way to like. Yeah, it's just a really horrible. 
painful way to eliminate a population. Oh, jeez. So I guess where uh, the the British soldiers at the siege of Boston missed a trick there. They should have just engaged in a bit of biological warfare. Just lick that hands. Like, yeah, got that. Licking <laughs> Made little faces. smallpox bombs to throw out into the... So the last two things. 2008, the US shifted its vaccine from like the freeze-dried vaccine to a cell culture one. So grown vaccines. Okay. Which is like awesome. I love that they can do that. Both vaccines use the va- vaccinia virus, which was uh, related to smallpox and cowpox, which I said before. And the new one, the it's called the Akinbis product, is grown in a cell con- culture rather on, than on the flanks of calves. So okay. that's it. That's where we're at. We have these vaccines that we could be used which were grown from soul cultures very nice and that's how we eradicated the world of smallpox is that so have we managed to eradicate anything else that's it that's the only one really yeah i wonder why did we just go i can't bother to do that again i mean that one three-year-old girl who had it and they like surrounded her house and did like a vaccination program. Also, let's remember that we live in England. Like, we are lucky that we have the vaccine right now. Yeah. Like, even oh, yeah, my totally. friends who live in Australia haven't had their vaccine yet. And people, you know, they're talking about giving boosters here when actually those vaccines could be used in other countries to help people who don't have the vaccine available. So, we are lucky, basically. Yeah. God bless those research departments at the uh, Oxford University. So, uh, any recommendations? Well, the reason why Saddam Hussein was on my mind is I've just watched um, How to Be a Dictator on Netflix. I really... Um, that's on my list. It's on my, it's, like... It was really... Fu- it's like it's a bit tongue... It's like... It's very tongue-in-cheek, but it's, yeah. it's really good. It's really funny. It's a cool. great documentary series. I definitely check it out. I love to know how to be a dictator. <laughs> we watched Three Identical Strangers last night. Have you seen What's it? What's that? It's a it's a Netflix documentary about three triplets. Oh yeah. Who didn't yeah. know they were related until they were nineteen. Yeah, and like basically in the first like ten, fifteen minutes, they find each other. Okay. And then you're like, what is the rest of this documentary about? And then it spirals and snowballs. And you know, like, I, you probably get this, and other people listening to this podcast probably get this. You know when you see someone on documentary, like a cool journalist or historian that you love? Yeah. And you're like, oh, I love that guy. This one had Lawrence Wright, who I'm obsessed with. He's a journalist <laughs> slash awesome author. He wrote the book on Scientology, as in the oh, one okay, that made then. a film yeah. on Going Clear. And he was on this, and he was the guy that discovered, like, the big thing that's revealed in the in the documentary. And I was like, it's Lawrence right, I love it! Okay, that was insane. I never knew, like, looking at the documentary, I've been like, oh, this would be a cool story. And I've been meaning to watch it for ages, but I never knew, like, how insane it was going to oh, get. Wow. So... Okay, recommend highly recommended i'm also really excited because i finished the circle by david eggers last week and he's actually releasing a sequel like next month <laughs> and okay. i'm like because it's not a new book like yeah. it's been out for like over 10 years 
or like ten years. I think it was two thousand thirteen. There's a few writers have done that, though, isn't there? Just left it for fucking ages before they wrote a follow up to their book. Well, there was the film like two years ago or like last year, and I have to put a warning out there, guys. If you haven't seen the film, read the book because the film changes the goddamn ending. Oh god, I hate when uh, films do that. And I was like, why did you do this? Now the sequel's probably not going to make any sense if they want to make a film. <laughs> why did they do that? Just to make it more Hollywood? I think so. Yeah, like the ending of the book is a lot grimmer than the ending. Spoilers. Than the ending of the film. <laughs> so I think that that's probably why. Hollywooding stuff up always ruins the story. The ruined totally Hugh Glass's story, that's a much better story. That's like... Fact is stranger than fiction. Oh, can I? One more thing that I read. I read a news article yesterday night about Facebook are bringing out or have brought out smart glasses with cameras in the end of the glasses, so you can like snap a picture and then post it to your stories. Which to me sounds like the worst privacy nightmare. Yeah, that just sounds awful of all time. They are basically just like James Bond glasses, I suppose. Watch out for Ray-Bans, everyone. <laughs> really shit James Bond glasses. Everyone go look at the article. I read it on The Guardian, but I'm sure it's other places. Type in like Ray-Ban Facebook and you'll find it. Oh dear. Scary <sighs> stuff. But, I mean, on that note, do follow us on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you ever pod? We haven't got a Facebook account, though, so that's something. Thank God. <laughs> And uh, subscribe wherever you're listening to us and tell your friends and maybe leave us like a review. Yeah. Five stars. No pressure. <laughs> but, you know, just if you're thinking about doing it, you might as well. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.